not necessarily in-depth, but uh, with an eye toward what it is that God um, used to fuel and uh, foment the Reformation. Um, When I was uh, a boy growing up and um, learning woodcraft and, um, you know, being a Boy Scout and a Cub Scout and all that kind of thing, uh, one of the things that I learned was how to start a fire in the midst of a downpour. Uh, how do you do that? And then also how to start fire when it's in snow and there's snow everywhere. And really the bottom line to that, um, first keep your matches dry, um, but beyond that is knowing how to put together tinder. To have the proper tinder, you get a fire. If you don't have the proper tinder, you're in a world of hurt. And what I want to approach this morning as we talk about the uh, Reformation is what is the proper tinder that basically brought this about. And we can use the word reformation, we can use the word revival, or we can use the word renewal. So I want to begin in laying a foundation uh, in the book of Hezekiah. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, the book of Second Kings. Uh, it would be sad if some of y'all started turning to the book of Hezekiah. Because um, unfortunately that is not there. In the book of Second Kings, we have, um, well, let me read the scripture first, and then I'll start breaking all this down. Second Kings 22, 11 through 13. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Hikim the son of Shapan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and I know I'm butchering these, And Shaphan the secretary and Asahiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judea concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath that the Lord is of the Lord is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book uh, to do according to all that is uh, written concerning us. And you go on and find out that the, um, uh, the word was read out loud for a long period of time. Um, then you go to, and, and I'm sorry Lena's not here, I'm sure she's our Bible, Bible scholar, uh, to the book of the shortest man in the Bible. Nehemiah? That's a Brett, sorry, that's a Brett joke. <laughs> And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double down on it because that is actually in question because it could possibly be Bildad the shoe height. We don't know. But anyway, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. 
And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, I chose these two particular passages because what we find in them is basically a rediscovery of the book of God's word. Um, When we look at both Second Kings and Nehemiah, it most likely was not a book particular of all of the Pentateuch, but the uh, what is uh, is given is that it was at least the book of Deuteronomy, and it wasn't a book per se; it was a scroll. And what makes it important <clears throat> as we look in Second Kings is that you have to understand that the Southern Kingdom had some good kings. When the kingdom of Israel divided into the north and the south, there were no good kings in the north. They were all apostate. But on occasion in the south, there were good kings. There were apostate kings and good kings. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. Then for 57 years, there was silence because Manasseh was one of the evil kings. He reigned for 55 years and basically threw the nation of Israel, of Judah in particular, into apostasy by worshiping <clears throat> the different gods of the pagans, uh, the Baals, the Asherah, uh, groves, these kinds of things. Then after him, Ammon comes, and he reigns for two years, and he's in the same boat. But God raised up a godly king in Josiah, Uh, who, interestingly enough, became a king at eight years old. And he was a godly king. He was a man who loved the Lord. And uh, we understand that Josiah took to repairing the house of God. Uh, He was not content with that. And so we have, before the passage that we're reading, the background, (coughs) excuse me, the background that the carpenters and and the uh, artisans and all are being called to restore and repair the house. And then we have in our scripture, verse 11, they found the law. The law is here. And they understand what this is. And what they understand with it is We have not had this for 57 years. It was all but lost. And so what happens is that Josiah uh, sets to have this word read to the nation of Israel, to the people. And the point of what I'm trying to say here is there was revival and renewal in the land because of the reading and rediscovery of the word of God. That's extremely important for us to understand. It was because of the word of God, the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. What they did after they um, read the law, you'll find and read later on, I don't want to go through all that because we've got some ground to cover. Um, Josiah set to make some reforms. One of the reforms was that he had all of the worship vessels of Baal, 
uh, and the other gods destroyed. Uh, Nothing was left. He cleansed the land entirely. He deposed the priests of the high places, took them away, and basically set aside these priests that were rebelling against God and put in the priesthood that was supposed to be there. Uh, He tore down the Asherah groves, which Asherah was the goddess who was the consort to Baal, and he also destroyed the uh, ability or the, the points of worship for Baal, who was a fertility god. And so Israel or Judah had gone after the pagan gods and Josiah destroyed all that. And then interestingly enough, he restored Passover, uh, I mean, uh, Sabbath worship. So we see a discovery. We see reform that comes about not because of his particular bent, but because the word of God has been discovered. Then we go back to the book of Nehemiah and we read those chapters or that, uh, those verses in Nehemiah and we find out that, well, the law again, the word of God again uh, becomes a uh, important point for the people. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And then we find out that Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly and read for morning to noon at least. Several hours of standing, listening to the word of God. And uh, there's understanding that there were some that, um, that interpreted as the uh, word was being read. And so what we have to understand, Nehemiah wrote post-exilic, after the nations had, uh, the nation of Israel and Judah had been destroyed and been carted away and the people were without their basic religion, uh, after 70 years, they come back and Nehemiah and Ezra are used by God to build the walls. And when the wall is finished, they come to the word of God and they determine to read the word of God. And it was requested by the people. And what comes from that is we see some reforms there too, is a basic repentance um, of the people Uh, We also see a uh, reinstating of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we also see that uh, other reforms come from this reading and from the word of God being applied to the life of uh, the people of, of Judah as they came back. One, they were not to marry pagan people. And they made a covenant with God that that would not happen anymore. They made a covenant to keep the Sabbath the holy days and the sabbatical years, including the release of debtors from debt on the sabbatical years. Uh, They also um, covenanted to pay a third of a shekel to support the temple ministry. They covenanted to supply wood for the offerings and they covenanted to tithe and give first fruits to God. Those are the things that came out. And if you read that passage and continue on, you'll see that these things are very clear as to what happened. Now, that's the foundation. We see what the word of God can do when people 
request it, when people are hungry for it, when people desire it, when it's rediscovered by a nation that has been apostate. We see what the Word of God can accomplish in our lives. We see what the Word of God can do to change even the nation of Judah. We can see what the Word of God does for his people as he directs his people and as he lives with his people. And as we read, um, as Brett read, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And your word I have hidden my heart so that I might not sin against you. And the important thing that we need to see this morning is the word of God is critical and crucial to our understanding of who God is, our understanding of who we are, and our understanding of what he requires of us. And it is a blessing to us to have the word. Now, how does that work for the Reformation? Interestingly enough, it was Martin Luther who kind of gets most of the glory because he's the one that in 1517 nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church and thus began his um, engagement with the Roman Catholic Church, the power of the time. Uh, but there were groundwork, there was groundwork that was laid before that uh, that we, I want to look at. Now, this is a little aside. Uh, I read this week, uh, may or may not be true. I'm not quite sure it is cause and effect. But for those of you who are coffee drinkers, it said that coffee came to Europe in 1515, and then Martin Luther in 1517 was awake enough to work on the Reformation. But what is the groundwork that happened with the Reformation? In 1408, the Catholic Church banned the unauthorized translation of the scriptures. And what was happening is that the only people who were to translate or to interpret the scriptures were the higher ups in the Catholic Church. Even the priests and the monks were not allowed to read the scriptures on their own. That was forbidden. That was verboten. And many times they were illiterate enough that they couldn't read. And so early on in 14, um, I'm sorry, in 1300s, 1384 or so, uh, there was a man called John Wycliffe. Uh, you've heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators, I'm sure. Uh, John Wycliffe, uh, he is called the morning star of the Reformation because that far back, he was working on translating the scriptures because there was a concern to be able to get the word of God into the vernacular of the people so that it was not hidden and away from them so that the people of God could read the word of God in their own language and by the Holy Spirit be moved toward conviction, toward um, comfort, toward understanding of the things that God wants us to know about him. Uh, he basically was stepping into, into trouble 
by questioning the scriptural authority of the church at the time. And he wrote polemics. He wrote quite a few uh, papers and he began to do translation work. And um, the one writing that it seems to have really set off uh, the church as its power and authority were being being challenged uh, was his writings on the Lord's Supper. Um, Well, he died. Uh, He was never excommunicated. He was never punished. He was brought before uh, different committees and and situations where he was challenged, but he didn't uh, go to a death that was uh, caused by uh, the church. Uh, he died in 1384, December, uh, January 1385, th- that window in there. They're not quite sure exactly when. Now, 1384, 1385. Here's an interesting fact. He was so scared. And what he did was so revolutionary and so challenging to the power and to the authority of the church and was fomenting uh, dissidents in the general populace and in the priests uh, and, and, and such that they were wanting the word of God that in 1415, he was officially excommunicated. That's a few years after he's dead. His works were all gathered up and burned. His body was exhumed And it was said that he was to have been um, basically uh, taken out of a a consecrated grave and put someplace else. And in 1428, uh, they burned his body and scattered the ashes on the River Swift. He was that deadly. And only because of the word of God. It wasn't John Wycliffe himself and his ideas, but as he studied the word. And it was that, that scary, that difficult, that the church itself, after he was dead, wanted him totally forgotten. Well, he was the one that kind of was the, the um, catalyst. There were others that came around. The next that I want to look at is uh, William Tyndall. Um, William Tyndall was <clears throat> was convinced that the Word of God should be translated into English. He was a contemporary of Luther. He didn't come before Luther, but he was a contemporary of Luther. And Tyndall was an Englishman. He uh, basically debated with the Uh, priests and the powers of the the church. And um, in 1525, he he produced the first translation of the English Bible. Uh, 90% of the uh, King James Bible was influenced by Tyndall. And I think it's like 70% of the Geneva Bible was influenced by Tyndall. And he did not translate out of the um, Latin Vulgate Because that was such a corrupt translation, he translated directly out of the Greek. And so he went back to the original languages. In some of his uh, dealings 
with one particular person. He said, if God spares my life, excuse me, ere many years pass, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Speaking to a priest. Basically, let's get the word into the hands of the people. <clears throat> In fifteen twenty-five, he was uh, his his translation of in, into English. Uh, what happened was Tyndall um, had to leave England and go to the continent because he was being pursued and he was being persecuted by the church, the, by the Roman Church in England at that time. And he did his work in, um, in Europe. And interestingly enough, the way he was captured was that a guy who was a spy um, befriended him and gained his trust and then betrayed him. He was captured in Brussels, I believe, and then sent back to England um, to die. And he was burned at the stake on October 8th in 1536. Wycliffe didn't suffer this. Tyndall did. There were others that helped translate the word that suffered um, uh, death. Luther. uh, Again, one of the things we need to understand about Luther, he was not trying to reform, make a big reformation with all the denominations and this, that, and the other. He did not have that in mind. He was moving to reform the church from within, not without. And so there's all the battles of the diets and and all these things calling him. He had to um, he had to flee. And um, Philip, forgotten which, um, but one of the German princes, Philip, um, protected him and uh, kept him safe as he did his translation work and all of his, um, all of his other works. So basically in 1522, uh, Luther translated the scriptures into German. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. The Reformation <clears throat> came about because people were so convinced, <clears throat> excuse me, of the word of God and the need of the word of God in the, the vernacular of the people. <clears throat> we see in the Old Testament, both stories, the word was read so the people could understand. We see that Wycliffe had that burning fire in him. Tyndall had that burning fire in him. John Huss had that burning fire in him. Martin Luther had that burning fire in him. And people wanted the word of God. Um, I've seen a video, uh, several videos actually, of people groups that have not had the word translated into their language. And one in one video in particular um, shows a uh, missionary flight coming into a, um, a village that is bringing in the Bible translated, the New Testament translated into their language. And as they fly in, the people of the village come out and they're dressed in their finery 
and the the um, the elders and the the muckety mucks are all out front, and they have a procession. They're singing. They're doing all kind of things. And as the men bring the crates out of the um, out of the plane, they set them down. When the crates are broken open, there was a near riot for people wanting to get a copy of the scriptures for themselves. And you see that time and again. If you go on YouTube and look for that kind of thing, you'll see how people in dire desperation need of the word, how they react, how they hunger, how they long for it, because they want to hear God speak from this book to their ears in a language that they can understand, in a language where they can engage by themselves the word and allow the Holy Spirit or have the Holy Spirit move in them and process in them and teach them and comfort them and challenge them and convict them and to help them grow in sanctification and the knowledge of the Lord. People are hungry for it. People need it. People have died to get it to the point where we can have it now. And one of the things that I've experienced in my own life and as a pastor over the years, in the American church in particular, There tends to be at times, and maybe even now, a ho-hum attitude about the scriptures. We can have three, four, five, six Bibles in our homes, but how much do we put into it? How much do we give to it? How much time do we allow it to soak into us? And I've had people say, well, Kim, I just don't have the time. And I'm like, I will debate that with you. You can have, in today's society, DVDs, the Bible Project on video, uh, CDs, MP3s, um, memory sticks. There's no reason... If you can't read, you don't have time to read, listen. Listen to the word of God. Let it fill you up. Let it flow over you. Because it was so important to God that he moved in people's hearts and people that would actually even burn to death because they saw the need for the word in the language that people could understand. If you... Feel that you don't have time? I mean, this is kind of crude, maybe, perhaps, kind of not. I have challenged people to spend time when they're in the bathroom. Don't have an awful lot more to do. Read the scriptures. That's not going to embarrass God. He's not going to go, oh, man, please don't do that. Read the scriptures. Find the time. Scriptures are inspired by God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we have to understand this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. 
And the scriptures also tell us, study to show yourself approved to God. Dig in it on your own. Look into it. Study it. Think about it. You have Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? It's not by reading Vincent, uh, Norman Vincent Peale or any of these yahoos that are writing this drivel today. It's by the word of God itself. Now, that's not to say uh, the use of um, devotionals or other books is wrong. But we need to foundationally know that the Bible and our ability to work with the Bible and read the Bible and know the Bible is paramount of importance to us. It is not by our emotions. It's not by our feelings. It's not by our wisdom that we grow in sanctification. It is by the word of God. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword And it will divide us down to that very place inside us that we might want to hide from God and he may want to reveal to us. So the point of Reformation Sunday today, as I've been blessed and honored to be able to come this morning, is not all of the things that came out, the the solas of scripture and uh, Calvinism and the five points and all those things, those are good things that have come from men studying and people studying the word. But the basic point of it is, uh, please see how revival, renewal, and reformation has always been driven by the word of God. By the word of God. And if, if you aren't spending time If I'm not spending time, we are in essence saying to the Lord, it's not that important. I I really don't need it. And so I hesitate to leave it just at that because I know that the Lord is a God of grace, but he is also a God that requires of us. And spending time in the word, whether it be listening, reading, whatever, is important enough to us that these people who discovered it in the Old Testament loved it. And these people who were pre-Reformation and Reformation fought major battles so that we could have five and six and seven and eight and nine, ten copies of the scriptures in our house. But if we don't get in them, basically it's worthless because it's not speaking to us. So folks, I would ask and I would pray for my own self, myself first, and then for each and every one of you to consider, do you need a reformation in your life of your understanding, your love, and your commitment to the Word of God? It's a question each and every one of us has to ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Nehemiah and Ezra. Thank you for Josiah 
in the example that's given to us. Thank you for um, John Wycliffe and William Tyndall and Martin Luther and John Huss and Melanchthon and Calvin and all of those that you used uh, to shake up the church at that time. Uh, thank you for them. Thank you that they responded. Thank you that they built their understandings of where they were going and what they were called to do on your word and not just on their um, dislike of the power and authority of the church at the time. Uh, So, Father, help us, bless us. Lord, help us, help me to see reading your word as a privilege and a joy instead of a drudgery and a duty. But, Lord, if that's where we are, help us to do that duty. Fill us by your Holy Spirit that we might love your word and that we might walk with you and speak with you and and hear you in your word. And Lord, as we go to this table, we ask that you would speak to us through these elements. We ask that you would meet us here and encourage us as we come to this table, as we meet with your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.